Welcome to the Three Tomatoes Happy Hour, and we do love happy hour and the clinking of glasses and cheers to all you fabulous women who are fully living your lives at every age and every stage. And here's the best news, every hour is happy hour. So whether you clink cheers with your coffee mug or your afternoon cappuccino, remember as the song says, it's five o'clock somewhere. Join us for some grown-up fun, interesting and stimulating conversations that will motivate, inspire, or just make you laugh. And for more grown-up fun, visit our website, The Three Tomatoes, and the three is spelled out, and sign up for our newsletters. Now sit back and relax and enjoy the episode. Well, greetings, tomatoes. I'm Cheryl Benton, and I'm your host of today's Happy Hour episode. And you are definitely going to want to grab a glass of your favorite wine, because my guest today is acclaimed winemaker Stephen Kent Mirasu. He is the founder of Stephen Kent Winery in Livermore, California, and he's also a descendant of the oldest and probably most respected wine family in the U.S., and we are going to be talking to him about his recently published book, Lineage, Life and Love, and Six Generations in California Wine, and it's a very personal memoir that weaves Stephen's story, his family's story, and the story of winemaking with such beautiful, exquisitely rich descriptions that make the reader really experience how it looks and feels to be a winemaker. So welcome, Stephen. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much, Cheryl. It's such an honor to be here, and I'm, I'm looking forward to, to talking with you. Well, terrific. And as I said earlier to you, I, I am by no shape a wine expert at all. So I'm probably going to ask all these very basic questions on some of these things. But I do really enjoy drinking wine. <laughs> that's the great that's a great first step. That, that, <laughs> exactly. That removes a lot of barriers right there. <laughs> so first of all, I have to say bravo to you on this really extraordinary book. And I and I and I don't use that that word lightly here. It's a fascinating story. It's a very unique look into the wine industry, but what really blew me away is how beautifully it's written. And it, and parts of it actually read like poetry. So I, it wasn't surprising at all when I read that you actually had started out wanting to be a writer, and that's actually what you discovered in, in, in college too. And we'll get back to that in a minute. But yeah. first, let's talk about your lineage. Your family is one of the oldest winemaking families in the US. I think they came here in the 1800s to California. So tell us about that. Well, yeah, my, my family uh, started making wine in California, in San Jose, uh, in 1854. So I, I, I love this little factoid. Six years before Abraham Lincoln was president, my family was making wine in San Jose. So wow. this kind of puts a, a little bit of context around how long we've been doing this. I'm the sixth generation of my family making wine in California. We're, we're now in the liver, centered in the Livermore Valley, which is about 30 miles north of San Jose. And really, uh, in and of itself, one of, the, one of the sort of viticultural hubs of the wheel of California grape growing. Um, and we've been up here for the oh, about 30 years or so. So 100 and, 130 years in San Jose, 30 plus years in, in Livermore Valley. And um, doing something now that that I hadn't anticipated doing when I went off to college, 
But when I had an opportunity to make my first vintage of wine, I immediately, it was a, an immediate transforming as religious an experience as I'm able of uh, 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 to feel. Um, it, it was, it, it just led to a lot of sort of magical doors being opened. And, and it's something that I, I'm profoundly thankful for. Well, let's talk about that a little bit because you did, you know, you grew up in the wine business. I think you said when you were in high school, you were doing a lot of the grunt work in, in the wineries, but it wasn't something you were thinking about doing. And you went east to school, right, to be a writer and found your way back. And then, as you said, then at some point fell in love with this magic of winemaking. So talk about that time a little bit more, because I thought that was fascinating in the book. My... um I grew up in South San Jose, uh, and which was about 15 minutes or so from the family winery, which was on the east side of, of town. The winery was sort of surrounded by nothing but vineyards and apricot orchards and, and cherry orchards all throughout my growing up. So it was really a magical place. And I started working at the winery in the summers. I think I was probably 13 or so or 14 when I first started there. And I, and I, I did do grunt work. I was sweeping warehouses out one summer. I was disgorging champagne one summer, working with a maintenance crew and various other things kind of through from, from 12 or 13 to 17. My family has been in, had been in Santa Clara County for generations. A uh, lovely place to grow up, wonderful place to grow up. You know, if you like sort of the bucolic atmosphere of, of how it used to be in California before Silicon Valley was a thing in, in the Bay Area. Uh, it was, it was uh, as I said, it was, uh, th there was a, a never-ending landscape of, of mysterious things to explore. I can remember finding cow skulls at the base of apricot trees, kind of in uh, wow. overgrown weeds when I was 11 or 12. And uh the wine business was at that point was was a, a great deal of fun for me in from the standpoint of knowing that knowing at least a little bit about the family history seeing my the pictures of my great grandparents and great great grandparents and great 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 grandparents on the tasting room wall and 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 you know and having a name that was somewhat famous in Santa Clara County at that point in time in the early 70s uh, it was it was it was a neat kind of a um there were not many fathers that were involved in the wine business. There were a lot of fathers who worked for IBM at that time and worked in, you know, in that sort of what became tech uh, and, and worked sort of your, your standard jobs. Um, my family was, was um, doing something that was unusual, but I, I really wanted to see more of the world. I, I I've always been curious, I think, always been inquisitive about what else is out there. And I remember taking a trip when I was in middle school, uh, kind of one of those middle school trips that a lot of people from California take. You start in Jamestown, Virginia, you go to Philadelphia, you go to Washington, D.C., <laughs> go to New York. And I fell in love with D.C. and New York when I was out there. And when I came back home, I, I and when, it, you know, when I was working my way through high school and it was time to, to pick a college, I definitely wanted to go across the country. And so I did my Nick Carraway impersonation and, and went and went east um, to George Washington University as an undergrad and then to NYU for my master's. When I first left, I think I, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, which I'm so happy that I chose, I didn't choose. <laughs> That's very funny. That's what I thought I wanted to be at one point too. <laughs> and I'm very happy I didn't make that decision. But, 
you know, and nothing, nothing against lawyers. They're no. necessary. They're, they're my daughter. One of my daughters, my third child, Catherine was just um, sworn in as an attorney yesterday. In ah. fact, she just passed the bar uh, in November. So she's, she's on to hopefully a, a wonderful um, uh, career of legal service. Excellent. Uh, but I, I fell kind of in uh, sort of enthrall enthralled with, with a couple of literature professors uh, as as a as a sophomore in college, and realized that this love of reading and, and writing that I had as a kid uh, was always I always had a book in hand was something that I could formalize and something I could see doing as an actual career, uh, and so that's what kind of led me in that direction, and um, it it has held me in in great stead ever since. Well, it's wonderful. So then you did make your way back to California though at some point right I did I I so that I I did my master's coursework at NYU I had a, the great privilege of working with some amazing professors I worked with Harold, Harold Bloom for a while and Dennis Donahue um I got my master's but then I, I realized I had three years more of dissertation work and the like I was working full-time I, I worked as a bellhop in hotels when I was going to grad school <laughs> and and doing various other things and realized at that moment that that I didn't really have the uh, the energy or so I, I guess to to go that route at that point in time. I had gotten married. Um, we'd had a couple of kids fairly rapidly. My my wife, my late wife now, uh, and so we decided to move back to California in 1992, so that my parents got a chance to see the grandkids grow up a, for a few years before we went back to the East Coast. That was the plan. Well, people who grew up in California um, generally know this, that when you go to the East Coast, um, it, it can be a really uh, amazing experience as it was for me. But when you go back to California, you don't go back East again, generally. California, <laughs> especially Northern California, is such a magical place that um, we what, what was supposed to be five years became 25 years or, or whatever it is now. Uh, and um, we drove a U-Haul and a Toyota Corolla jam-packed with all of our belongings from New Jersey. I spent eight days driving uh, across the country with, with two young kids and one on the way at that point in time. And we would drive for 10 hours during the day and be exhausted when we got to our hotel in New Mexico or wherever it was at, at, at any given day. And the kids who were sleeping the whole time were jumping up and down in the bed all night long. So it was, it was an exhausting <laughs> trip, but it was a really amazing trip too. <laughs> um, but and so we finally wound up in San Jose um, at a, in a double wide trailer for a, a year and, and then kind of moved up from there. So how did you realize that when you were back, how did you discover that you actually love we're in love with wine how did that moment come about that that's a that's a, an, a great question i i started working for an outdoor maintenance company i was sort of managing some contracts for for municipalities um in in the bay area and started working for my father in 1996 very early in 96 and we had been talking for about a year prior to that about getting in getting back into the business as it were and um what that commitment would mean it was really going to be uh, end up being a sales job. My my father and his uh, partner had a small brand that was being the wines were being made by by another winemaking team, uh, and I was happy to start on the sales end of things. We we decided in '96 to start our own brand, the Stephen Kent Winery, which is our first and middle name. 
we couldn't use Mirasu because the family still owned the family brand, which my father had left in the, in the mid eighties. So we started Stephen Kent with a mission to make one Cabernet from the Livermore Valley that we thought could compete with Napa Valley. Napa obviously was 800 pound gorilla. It's now the 8,000 pound gorilla <laughs> for, for fine winemaking in California. But the Livermore Valley is as old as Napa and really was the first great wine growing region in, in the Bay Area. First international gold medal ever given to a California wine way before Sideways was for a Livermore Valley wine. We knew what we could do if we found the right vineyards and if we farmed properly and, and were... Um, careful about the winemaking. And it was 96, 97, 98, that time frame that I, I got into the production end of the business as well. And as I kind of mentioned earlier, um, there are certain kind of liminal moments, threshold moments, right? Where you're, you're in a place uh, and you're experiencing something completely new. And it is uh, a, a passageway to um, a, a life that you didn't know existed prior to that. And those are really magical moments in people's lives. And those are moments that I seek out. Um, that was, that was a, a, a absolutely life-changing for me. I don't know, generally seek that, uh, <laughs> that degree of newness necessarily. But once I got into the production end of things, once I got into managing fermentations and pressing wine and having my hands deep in fermenters and tasting wine as it was being in the process of being made, uh, I, it, it was uh, magical. I, use that, I keep using that word, but it was absolutely transformational and been making wine ever since. I mean, part of my job still is the sort of marketing of what we're doing, writing about wine, traveling to various places to do tastings and, and that sort of thing, which I love. I, I love being able to communicate about wine. I love being able to proselytize the idea of the role that wine plays in a, in a well-lived life and, and how connecting and connective it can be for people. Uh, and and every, every vintage... Every new vintage is, is, is a new story, a new chapter in, in not only the career, but just in the idea of, of sort of deepening the aesthetic, um, uh, the aesthetic side of my life, which really is probably the most important side of my life. And, and, and the wine, the, the writing part of things is sort of hits a lot of the same chords that, um, that the, the winemaking side does. Well, I, I love how you describe the magic in your book, and I love that you appreciate those magical moments because, honestly, so many people don't recognize the magical moments when they're there, it's, and it, that is a really special thing, and I think you just have to be very open to that to realize that it is right. something very magical, and I, I want to go back to the book. I actually want you to read something because you really had me at hello from the very <laughs> beginning of your book. And you early on, you have such a beautiful description of what it's like to taste a wine with your heart. And I would love if you could read that because it just goes to everything you were just saying a few minutes ago about the magic and people can hear the magic of your words right now. Thank you very much. I, I would love to. I think if I if I have the note correctly, it's um, the little passage. Okay, so here we go. Page page twelve. I think is where we are. Yeah. To take in wine and to contemplate it as one tastes 
is to open oneself to a world of sensual mysteries that does not comply with rational rules. Parameters and perimeters have no measure here. Time is fluid here too. Simultaneously, the before, the now, and the after. To taste a wine with one's heart is to come to know the dirt between the farmer's fingers, the exhalations of the vineyard as it sleeps in the black night. You will come to know also the woman who takes the grapes from the vine with a practice cut, the stooped man who rakes out the tanks after the juice is wine. And you will know finally the mind and the large heart of the exhausted winemaker who is filled to bursting when he gets the chance to take care of people. That is just so beautiful. I, I so want to feel that someday when I drink a glass of wine and I will be thinking of that. And ever since I've read that passage, it's made me think about it a lot more with each sip of wine. Thank you. So thank you for reading that. And that just gives thank everyone you. a little sense of, as I said, it's poetry. So much of this book to me read like poetry. So I want to go back a, a little bit more to Livermore Valley, because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening, like me from the East Coast. Yeah. Well, we know Napa and Sonoma. We don't know Livermore Valley. So tell us about Livermore. Why? I know you're very passionate about that and the wines you're growing, but what is so special about it? What do we need to know? And and what makes the wines different? If that's the right question, I hope. It's a great, it's a great question. And it's a, it's a complicated question. A lot of, a lot of what uh, Livermore Valley is and has become and has not become is based on where it's located. Um, it's, as I said, about 30 miles north of San Jose and about 70 miles, call it, south of, of Napa Valley, of, of sort of mid to upper Napa Valley. It is a, a growing area that's relatively small, only about 2,000, 2,500 acres planted, compare that to 45,000 acres of fruit in Napa Valley. So it's small. We have 50 wineries here compared to 550 in Napa, a small region. If, you, if you've been in Napa, if, if listeners have been in Napa, you see this amazing, beautiful place with a couple little highways that run through the valley. Everything about Napa Valley is wine related, whether it's barrel cooperages or glass companies or restaurants or 550 wineries. Everything revolves around wine, which is a really amazing thing. It's, a, it's an environment, um, um, an ecosystem that is devoted to farming, grape growing, and making wine, and um, hospitality. All of those things are true about Livermore also. However, the thing that makes it a different place is its proximity to San Jose, and its proximity to, uh, to San Francisco. Um, it's Livermore is kind of tucked into a, a, a sort of nexus of two large freeways. In order to see the vineyards, you really have to get off the road a few miles, as opposed to being able to go down Highway 29 and see vineyards everywhere if you're in Napa right. Valley. The growth of Silicon Valley really kind of uh, contributed immensely to the destruction of all the vineyards that were in San Jose and Santa Clara Valley that my family had going back to the 1850s and really forced my family south down into Monterey County, another 60 or 70 miles south of where the family winery and vineyards were located. It, it, there's a chapter in the book called The Gods of Asphalt and Shingle, and it really is a kind of description of what it was like in the 60s and 70s to be running around in this bucolic, beautiful area, but having 
almost you could almost see it happening in front of you the vine the vineyards being torn out the orchards being torn out and the houses being built and um livermore valley has become to a certain degree anyway kind of a bedroom community of san jose and the silicon valley and land that is made into houses is worth more than land that is that is planted to to vineyards one of the one of the important things about livermore though is there is a there is a, a sort of an agricultural preserve or conservancy that exists here in the southern part of our valley that uh, allows for land to be put into trust so that it will always remain in agriculture, unlike San Jose, where there are no more vineyards. So that's an important part of the future of the Livermore Valley. Livermore uh, is a warm area during the day, a very cool area at night because it, it it's subject to all the breezes that are coming eastward from the San Francisco Bay. So it's an ideal place to grow the kind of grapes that we love to make wine from, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, the Bordeaux varieties, um, succeed beautifully here. Creating a style of wine, at least the way that we make our wine, that has a, a richness of fruit to it, has a balance of acidity and tannin. So the structural component of our wines is um, we, we spend a lot of time thinking about that, and we and and, and I, I spend a lot of time um, worrying and and working on how to create a structure that shows the beauty of the wine when it's young, but also allows for it to age, and hopefully creates a a, um, a story between the wine and the drinker, and between the drinker and the maker, uh, a connection, an emotional connection that is powerful, that that. Um, that I think ends up creating or, or fostering uh, a, a, an enthusiastic wine person and converting that person into a passionate wine person, allowing that person to dive ever more deeply into what becomes a bottomless pursuit. You can never know everything about wine. Every time you take a sip of wine, it's a different experience. Wine is like a living thing. And so it lives and it breathes. It, it's it's an unruly youth. Uh, it becomes a, a sort of cultured, middle-aged person, and then it eventually dies uh, over time. And every time that you dive into a glass of wine, you have an opportunity of tasting something new, something that, that can be magical, again, at certain points in its life, well-made um, and and. Uh, that that's something that most consumers, in fact, I don't know of any other consumer product that, you, that gives you that kind of um, evolution, that kind of kind of experience that that is can be so emotional, so fraught in some ways um, that that allows for um, the, the beverage in, in its general form to be used as a way of connecting people, strengthening relationships, creating relationships. You, you sort of think about all of the, the the important moments in people's lives, the births of children, the graduations from law school, uh, the new job, the death of a loved one, all commemorated and memorialized with wine, uh, not with uh, beer generally, not with a piece right. of wood, not with you know um, uh, a widget or a computer chip. Wine has a very um, storied history culturally. Histor historically, religiously, it's it is um, it has a breadth to it as a as a thing that is just it's hard to wrap one's arms around all that it does and has done over the eight thousand years that it's been made, um, and 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 every time that I dig into a glass of wine, 
it, the, the possibilities of, of uh, you know, a, a epiphany and, and, and liminal transformation and all that kind of stuff exists. And that's, that's one of the things that, that it's so compelling to me about it. Well, and you're so, you're so passionate about it too. So tell us a little bit about some of the wines that you produce. And I know you, your goal is to make the best wines possible. And I think I just read recently, you, you got a hundred points on, on one of your, I think it was one of your wines. That is extraordinary. Yeah, that was, that was, that was lovely. That was a wonderful thing. Um, a lot of, a lot of, as we were talking before we started, the, the selling stuff is, is really difficult. Uh, making things are, are not necessarily easy. Um, they're challenging, wonderfully so. Trying to sell stuff, trying to sell books, trying to sell wine, anything uh, is is much more difficult pursuit. So the scores certainly help. Um, we're, we're after trying to make something wines and generally the Bordeaux varieties. So again, Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon, Merlot, blends of those grapes. Uh, that are as good as any in the world. That's our goal. We know that Livermore as a wine growing region allows for that quality of fruit. We're also getting amazing fruit from amazing vineyards in the Santa Cruz Mountains. One really magical special place in Napa Valley as well. So we're expanding the areas that we're getting fruit from so that um, the sites become important. The stories surrounding the sites become important. The wines... Um, that we make are, are made with great intent and great seriousness and great fun and great passion. My winemaking team, uh, which consists of my son, who's the seventh generation of the family in the business now. That's yeah, um, so great. Growing out that lineage ever longer, which is a beautiful <laughs> thing. And, and Beth Ref Snyder, um, my, my other assistant winemaker, the three of us are the winemaking team. We make about 3000 cases of wine or so kind of contracting that to, to make seven or eight wines that are reflections of places, reflections of time. And great wines are those things. They come from a specific place. They're made in a certain time, not only a certain time just from a calendar year standpoint, but a certain time uh, um, with respect to what's going on in the world, what's going on in the winemaker's world at that point in time as well. Our, my winemaking philosophy has changed over the years, and, and the wines that, that I make now are different than the wines I made 20 years ago. Uh, they, for, for better or for worse, I, I have evolved as a person. My preferences for certain styles of wine have changed as well, and we, we are trying to make wines that, that, um, that fit a picture in, in our minds before, before um, we actually crush the fruit as we're walking through the vineyards, picking berries and tasting them and choosing the time when we're actually going to, to press all or to, to harvest fruit. Um, uh, we are looking to make something that is as perfect as possible and as perfect as possible, not only from a flavor standpoint and a structure standpoint, but something that really reflects where those grapes are grown and the time that they were made uh, in, in all contexts of time. So it, it's, uh, it, it's, you know, I cannot be unmoved by wine. It, for some people, it's just a beverage, and I get it. And if it's delicious, that's an important part of the equation as well. But for me, it's there's there's just such a connection between, you know, the the between aspiration, between hard work, between um, uh, just a passion for making something beautiful uh, uh, for the land, for history, for 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 making the ancestors proud, as it were. Uh, that that wine wine making will never be just a 
a vocation? Well, I know, I mean, it's, it's just such a beautiful description of, of what you do and how passionate you are. And it makes us all want to appreciate, even though we like wine like me, it just makes me want to appreciate it so much more on a deeper level, just hearing you talk about this and the things that we should be thinking about. And, but I know for many people, wine and vineyards, you know, we have a very romanticized view of that. And I know some people said, oh, wouldn't it be so nice to own a vineyard? <laughs> And definitely, obviously, it is lovely and wonderful. But throughout your book, too, you do talk about the challenges, the difficult growing seasons. I can't imagine during the wildfires how difficult. And I know a lot of vineyards were lost there. You talk about business mistakes. In fact, I think somewhere in your book you mentioned, I think it was the fourth generation of your family turned down the chance to buy a 1,000 acres in Napa. Yes. <laughs> Still lamenting that. Uh, yes, I'm sure. <laughs> and you talk about the loss of some of the some of the the vineyards in Newark, but you always your book always comes back to the joy and the beauty of winemaking. And you have I hear your dog. Usually mine are coming and barking now. They somehow always know when I'm doing this. So, but yes. that's fine. We're big dog lovers. Very good. <laughs> they see somebody driving around the winery, so they're they're uh... of course they're you know it's not, they're on guard here. Right. So. You always come back to the joy and the beauty of, of winemaking. And you have a chapter called Making Wine is Morning Work. And I'm just hoping you can read some of that chapter. I think it's uh, it's the very beginning of it. And it's just so beautiful. Thank you. I, I appreciate the opportunity. Let me see here. Let me just grab my book yeah. here. My, my dogs. <laughs> Making wine is morning work. The heart of the winery is always beating well before the sun rises over the eastern hills as trucks carrying fruit from all over California arrive at the scale house. The fruit that was picked in the perfect cold blackness a few hours before is arriving now on a flatbed truck. Headlights dance in the cold air as tank trucks and pickups pulling trailers and trucks hauling 20-ton gondolas samba slowly to the scale. The mechanical clatter of the crusher bats off the high masonry walls of the winery as Antonio and Joel, two of Wenti's small lot winery crew, get the fruit receival machines up and running. I head back to my workspace in the tasting lab with the weigh tags from the morning's load. Aiden is off loading half-ton bins of fruit to the scales, and Beth is readying the fermenting boxes. In harvest time at the crush pad, an unruly ballet is always in progress. Forklifts zoom like hummingbirds taking picking bins off trucks. Those trucks heave out of the yard back to the vineyards to be loaded again. Forklifts lurch through large swinging doors bringing full fermenters to the 100 room. The Wenty Winery is divided up into separate workspaces and each is simply and clearly named. The winemaking team is racing up tank ladders, carrying buckets of yeast, redolent of the morning bakery. The foreman is yelling in Spanish and his words form curlicues in the cold mist of the morning. Beneficent chaos and noise. That is just, that is so beautiful. I just want to someday experience some of that at some vineyard somewhere. Absolutely. So I, I could talk to you for the rest of the afternoon. This is like so wonderful, but Thank I do have, much. I do have one last question before we wrap up. And towards the end of your book, you talk about now that you're over the age of 50 and you're a grandfather, 
that your idea of success has changed. So how has that changed from when you were when you were younger? Thank you for asking. That, that's a, that's an important question. It's something I'm, I I continue to be challenged by. Um, when you're younger, uh, when I was younger anyway, there there the business part of our business is important. Obviously, if we're if we're not able to if we're not able to communicate well enough or make wine that is desired enough, you're not going to be in business long term. We've been in business for 25, 26 years now as a, as a Stephen Kent brand and Lineage Wine Company, a couple of different brands that we have. Um, and when I was younger, it was really all about trying to get the next sale. It was, we were obviously loved the winemaking part of it, but understood that given that we were such a small operation and we had to wear a lot of different hats, one of the hats I had to wear was traveling around the country, working with distributors to try to get wine sold in New York City or in South Florida or Arizona, California, wherever it was. And the wine business is extremely competitive. There are, I think it's something like six or seven wine companies in the country make 80% of the wine that's sold. And wine is a mul multiples of hundreds of billions of dollars a year as a business in, in the US. California is obviously the largest wine producing state by far. Um, we, we do $100 billion worth of business in California as well. You're, we're always competing with the, with the gallows of the world and, and the large wineries. And our wines um, are expensive. They're, 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 I think, very good. Uh, sometimes they're great. And being a small winery in a small place like Livermore Valley that doesn't have the prestige and, and the visibility that Napa does makes that pursuit, especially out in, in, in sort of far ranging areas, very difficult. Our direct to consumer business, people who come to our tasting room, people who are members of our wine clubs, uh, are, are, give us a, a, a greater opportunity to, to create relationships with people who love wine maybe don't know us yet, but we'll get to know us as we have a chance to share, share more and more with them. Uh, for me now, as, as I realize, and I hope there's many, many more ahead, but you never, never know that there are, there are more vintages behind me than there are ahead of me, probably. I hope that they're, they equal out at some point in time. But for me, it's really about um, trying to create a uh, um, a stability for my my kids um, from a business standpoint for my grandkids so that the business can continue on to generation seven and eight and nine and ten um, so we continue to be the oldest winemaking family in the country it's about creating the proper relationships with our vineyard sites the proper relationships with our um, with our guests here at the winery with wine lovers around the world, it, a, a way of sharing, a way of taking care of people. That's what drives me now. Uh, we, we are a hospitality business first and foremost, our vehicle for taking care of people, for adding joy and richness to people's lives is wine. We don't, we're not a restaurant, but we really do the same thing. Hospitality, it has the root hospital, hos, hospitableness, right? That's an, an extremely important concept for us. The COVID experience over the last almost two years now has been a very stark reminder about what it means to, what it means to, and what the value of being able to take the cares of people's daily existence away a little bit, to add a little bit of, uh, of joy to a person's life, to make 
that that day a little bit lighter for somebody. And if we can do that every day, we're succeeding. And, and if we're, if we are getting closer, if I'm getting closer as a winemaker to making wines that really hew to this vision I have for those wines, and if I have an opportunity to continue to write and, and write the next book about whatever, whatever it is I'm working on, um, that for me will be uh, success, will be an opportunity to continue to, to nurture the aesthetic side of my life, hopefully contribute um, great prose and great wine to people's lives and, and, uh, and, and just live a, a kind of a, um, a, a joyful life, a happy life. That's, that's my definition of success now. Well, that is well said, and I think you've already checked off all of those and that you will just continue to do that. So it's Thank just, you. it's been such a pleasure to talk to you today. It, it really you, has. And your, your, your book is a love letter to Livermore Valley. It's a love letter to wine. It's a love letter to the wine industry. And for everyone listening, it's also a very deeply personal story. It includes the loss of your wife, the loss of vineyards. But then it talks about new opportunities and a new love in your life. And it's hopeful, it's joy. And as as the your subtitle says, it's life and love and six generations. And that comes through on every single page. And it's, as I said, it's just beautifully written. So to everyone who's listening, the book is Lineage, Life and Love and Six Generations in California Wine. It's a perfect gift right now for the holidays for any friend or anyone in the family or just anyone who loves a well-written book and uh it's it's just a, a a terrific book and and anyone who loves wine food companionship um uh, it, it's it's wonderful so to learn more about stephen's vineyards and the book you can go to stephenkentmirasu.com we will put that in the show notes Thank and you. again, just thank you so much. It's been a delight. It's been a delight for me as well. Thank you so much. I I I, I never tire of talking about uh, about this this part of my life and about just these things in general. I think they're important. I think they get uh, short shrift sometimes when we're talking about the economy and talking about various other things that are are very uh, um, emergent and and very uh, in your face, as it were. But uh, I, I think that people owe it to themselves to take a little time, you know, and 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 to relax a little and, and have something that will connect them to, to the land and to nature and to, uh, to people who are intent upon um, making things that will help with, with uh, the, daily, the daily stuff. And I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk to you. Well, to it's you been a that. lovely respite for me this afternoon too. I have to say I have this fun and, and really lovely, uh, lovely conversation with you. And I can't wait. The next time I go to Northern California, I'm going to your tasting room. <laughs> and I will let you know in advance because that is something I have not experienced and I will look forward to that. Forward to, look forward to talking with you and pouring you some good wine. Terrific. And happy holidays. Thank you so much. Thank you very much.